Chapter Two, Part B of Aces Up by Covington Clark. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Pass to Paris. Thirty minutes later, two chastened pilots took off from the level field with a half dozen curious French peasants for an audience and laid a straight course for Le Bourget. No more acrobatics and no more hedge hopping. To an observer below, they would have resembled two homing pigeons flying rather close together and maintaining their positions with a singleness of mind and purpose. When they reached Le Bourget, they circled the drome once, noted the wind-socks on the great hangars, and dropped as lightly to the field as two tardy truant schoolboys seeking to gain entrance without attracting notice. A newly arrived American squadron was stationed at the field, jubilant over the fact that they were trying their skill on the fast-climbing, fast-flying, single-seater spads. Five of these swift little hawks were now on the line, making ready for a formation flight. McGee and Larkin introduced themselves to the officer in command, presented their passes and authority for refueling, and McGee requested that his tail-skid be repaired and his motor checked over. "'Let's stick around and watch this formation flight,' McGee then said to Larkin. "'I want to see what these lads can do with a real ship.' "'All right, but don't get goggle-eyed. I came up here to see Paris, and I'm thirty minutes behind time now.' The take-off of the five spads was good, and in order. McGee noticed with considerable satisfaction that the flight commander knew his business, and the four planes under his direction followed his signaled orders with a precision that would have been creditable in any group of pilots. "'Nice work,' Red said to an American captain who seemed not at all impressed. The captain was six feet tall, burdened by the weight of rank and the ripe old age of twenty-four or twenty-five years, and was somewhat skeptical of McGee's judgment. He wondered, vaguely, what this youthful, freckle-faced, five-foot-six Royal Flying Corps lieutenant could know about nice work. Why, he couldn't be a day over eighteen. In fact, he might be less than that. A cadet who had just won his wings, probably. "'Oh, fair,' the captain admitted. McGee, sensing what was running through the captain's mind, and having no wish to set him right, winked at Larkin and said, "'Let's go, Buzz. It isn't often that two poor ferry pilots get a twenty-four-hour leave.' Later, as they were bounding cityward, in a decrepit, ancient taxi driven by a bearded, grizzled Frenchman who without make-up could assume a role in a drama of pirates and freebooters, McGee said to Larkin, "'You know, Buzz, I think a lot of these American pilots are better prepared for action right now than we were when we got our wings. And we had hardly gotten ours sewed on when we were ordered to the front. These fellows will give a good account of themselves.' "'I think so, too. Do you remember how the cadets of our class were sent up for solo in rickety old planes held together by wire, tape, and chewing-gum? Poor devils, they got washed out plenty fast. I've seen them go up when the expression on their faces told that they had forgotten everything they had learned. No wonder a lot of them took nose-dives into the hangars and hung their planes on smokestacks and church steeples. McGee frowned, remembering some of the friends who had tried for their wings and drew crosses instead. Quickly he threw off the mood with a laugh. "'Yes, and I was one of those poor devils who forgot. I'll never forget that. I had no more right being up in that old Avro than a hog has with skates. But England needed pilots, and needed them badly. I guess it was a case of what goes up must come down, and the government gave wings to the ones who came down alive. The others got angels' wings.' "'I suppose so. 
and before another month passes the need will be greater than ever. Look what the Germans did to the British Fifth Army just last month. I'll never know what stopped them, but they're not through. What do you make of that long-range gun that is shelling this very city? Um, don't know. Seems to me that well-directed reconnaissance flights should be able to locate that gun. Maybe. But located or not, its purpose is to drive war workers out of Paris, cripple the hub of supplies, and make it more difficult for us to coordinate the service of supplies through here when they make their drive at Paris. It'll come within a month. Then we'll need every pilot and every ship that can get its wheels off the ground. I'm telling you, a month. Think so? I know so. America is going to have her big chance, and may the Lord help us if she doesn't deliver. I don't know how many combat troops she has landed, but I do know that her eyes, the air service, is in need of ships. The French and English are willing to give them all the old worn-out flying coffins that they can pick up out of junk heaps. Old two-seater spads, old ARs, one-and-one-half strutter sopwiths, and crates like that. If they can get new spads, like those we saw him flying in this morning, or Newport 28s, or the Selmsons, which their commander has been trying to get, then all will be Jake. Otherwise, he shrugged his shoulders expressively. Otherwise, McGee took advantage of the pause, otherwise they'll deliver just the same, even if they have to fly Avros, cauldrons, or tabletops. Buzz, these Americans over here have fight in their eyes. They've got spirit. Yes, but spirit can't do much without equipment. Ha! Huh. Ever read any history? What's in your mind now, little teacher? I read enough to pass my exams in school. Then you've forgotten some things about American history, especially about spirit and equipment. Where was the equipment at Valley Forge? What about the troops under Washington that took the breastworks at Yorktown without a single round of powder? Just bayonets. What about the War of 1812, when we had no army and the English thought we had no navy? You don't remember those— that's just what I do remember, Buzz interrupted, and that's what I'm howling about. We never have been prepared with anything except spirit. Right now we have a lot of good pilots over here, and the air service is having to beg planes from the French and English. And here we are, sent down to this front to act as instructors to a shipless squadron, at the very time when the Germans are making ready for another big drive. It's all wrong. Every minute is precious." McGee had been looking out of the window of the swaying, lurching cab that was now threading its way through hurrying traffic. "'Forget it,' he said. "'Give old man worry a swift kick. Here we are in gay Paris. The war's over for twenty-four hours.'" End of chapter 2, part B